Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Join us live in New York City on June 20th, 2018 for Entree Architect Live, an interactive small group workshop designed exclusively for you, the small firm entrepreneur architect. Learn more at entrearchitect.com slash New York. You are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, and this is episode 217. Welcome back to Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark R. LePage, and this is the podcast dedicated to a successful life as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Whether you have plans to someday start your own firm, you're in the process of launching a startup, or you may be an experienced small firm architect just like me, just trying to make a difference, this podcast is for you. My goal is to inspire you to build a better business so that you may pursue your purpose with passion and live the life of your dreams. It's been 215 episodes, but he's back. Today we have Bob Borson, and we talk about his firm, his family, and life of an architect. Join us. We'll be right back after these messages. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM, specifications, and much more at rcat.com, and FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, 
and secure. Spend less time on accounting and more time doing the work that you love. Bob Borson, welcome back to Entree Architect Podcast. Thanks, Mark. I am uh, excited after such an extended delay to be back on my favorite podcast. Yeah, number two. Number two. Yeah. Number one was like an experiment, so I really call you number one. <laughs> I really call you number one. Well, I'm glad somebody does. I'll take it. <laughs> so anybody wants to hear the first episode, that was before you moved and became a partner in your current firm. So that's how long ago that was. Yeah, that would make it yeah. That would make it at least five or six years ago. Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, it was 2012. It's, or actually, yeah. early 2013. Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. It's a long time. Congratulations long. on your lengthy and successful run in podcasting. Yeah. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. And I think I appreciate you being here. Let me, let me, I, I think probably the majority of our listeners know who you are, but let me just give, give them a uh, brief intro here. Um, and then we'll get into some, some interesting conversation here. Bob Borson is a principal of Malone Maxwell Borson Architects, a full service architecture firm based in Dallas, Texas. Uh, the award-winning practice is frequently published and is a widely recognized for its uh, thoughtful and considered designs. In 2013, Malone Maxwell Borson Architects was honored as the AIA Dallas Firm of the Year. So that's pretty cool. Uh, Bob is very active at his local and state components of the American Institute of Architects, uh, where he serves on several committees, led several initiatives, very focused and, and determined on at local AIA, sort of local and, and state chapters over there. And in 2009, Bob was recognized by the Dallas AIA as Young Architect of the Year. And in 2017, he was elevated into the AIA National College of Fellows. So he is an FAIA. Uh, most of our listeners probably know Bob through his blog that he writes and maintains at lifeofanarchitect.com, which is currently the most visited privately maintained architectural blog site in the world, which is pretty awesome. Millions of listeners every year. Um, he's also a very dedicated dad and mom, or he's not a mom. He's a very dedicated husband <laughs> and dad um, yeah. and a traveler. And he has uh, great tips, Great a, a great tip that Bob has given me over the years we always bump into each other at AIA conferences and national convention. And he's always saying, sign up for the tours, take the tours. And so I think that's very good advice for everybody. And that's sort of, I want to get into, um, into family and travel. That's what I want to talk to you about. Cause you just came back from Ireland. And so I want, yes, to, I want I to hear a little bit about that. Um, but I really want to talk about, you know, how that all works with the firm. How does a firm and the family sort of integrate with one another? Uh, that's what I want to get into. But before we do that, I want you to go back, tell your origin story. Where did you discover architecture? What inspired you to become an architect? And tell us that story from that point to where you are today. Uh, we only have, how long do we have? That's a long story. <laughs> Half uh, hour. You got, you got about 30 <laughs> seconds. Go. All right, there you go. Well, here's the short version. So um, my earliest recollection was that I wanted to be an architect. And I, I didn't even know that architecture was a job. I didn't know what the title of it was. I just thought, this seemed like a cool thing. And my dad, who was an engineer, uh, surprisingly in encouraged it. And when for Christmas, when I think it was when I was five years old, as a present, I got a drafting board, a T-square, and a triangle. And I didn't know what any of them were. Yeah. Right? They're just these things. But it was like such a really beautiful piece of wood. I remember uh, with absolute clarity that I looked at this board and I ran my hands over it and I thought, 
I'm going to cut this up and make a boat. <laughs> yeah. right? I don't know why I was a boat, but that's, that's what I was going to do. And my yeah. dad was like, no, 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 it's, that's, it's, a, it's a drawing board. And so he started showing me how to use it. And it just kind of went from there. And, and I don't know if that kind of locked me into this trajectory that this is what I was. And I just never wavered from it. Yeah. Um, but it was just, you know, the funny thing about it was it was just at that moment it was cemented. This is what I'm going to do with my life. Now, how, I how will. Old, how old were you? I was five years old. Five. So that's, that's five probably probably the earliest that I've ever had anybody. The, it was say. the earliest, and, yeah. and really, there was no logic. There was no like, yeah. oh, I like to. It just, it was just. I think it was this beautiful piece of wood that yeah. really did it. And the other thing that helped is I met a guy. You know, when I was a young, young teenage boy. I mean, I might not even have been a teenager yet. You know, maybe I was ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, somewhere in that range. Uh, a guy that uh, I I knew had bought a Porsche 928. And I thought that was the coolest car I'd ever seen in my life. And I'm not a huge car guy, but at that moment, you know, I guess 13-year-old boys are all into cars a little bit. Yep. And he was an architect. And I thought, oh, <laughs> see, that just like, that just really, I'm on the right track. Locked it in. <laughs> yeah, what I didn't realize is that that, that was like a really old Porsche that he had. <laughs> I think it was like falling apart and it wasn't as cool as I remember it when I, we, when I visited him in the years since then. But yeah, that's pretty much the origin story. I, uh, I, I tell I get so many contacts from younger people that are that are wondering if this is the right path for them and are they yeah. going to be good at it and they want to hear that origin story. I tell them that I went to college um, and I'd always thought this is what I want to be. In my freshman year in architecture school, I sucked. I mean, I was terrible, and a lot of it had to do with my maturity level. I was really immature and I didn't put really the time and attention and effort into doing what I needed to do based on where I was going to school and the and the just unbelievable alpha talent that was surrounding me. And I had this huge identity crisis that all of a sudden I'm 18 years old. And, and this thing that literally I thought, this is what I want to do with my life since I was five years old. I thought, and you suck at it. You're terrible. And it's like, now what do I do? Yeah. L luckily I, I got through it and just kind of, kind of refocused my efforts and things have kind of fallen into place since then. But that's essentially the story. What, what got you through that? Do you, do you know? Uh, do you know why you kept moving forward? Well, you know, it, it's hard. It's it's hard to give up on a on. I don't even know if I'd call it a dream. It was just, it was such a certainty, right? A this destiny. is what it was going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And for all of a sudden to, to think that that was not true was was literally at, at eighteen years old was impossible for me to digest. Yeah. So I actually took a year off from design school. I mean, I was still at college and I was still taking all the other classes. I just didn't take studio. Yeah. And, um, and the truth is I, I grew up during that one year, you know, I, I became a little bit more mature. I kind of, yeah. yeah. you know, my parents were really kind of buttoned down folks. And, and I went, when I went to college, I kind of went a little crazy. I mean, I had a lot of fun and, uh, that first year. And I think that was really kind of what, what created this identity crisis because I wasn't spending the time or effort and energy focusing on the things I needed to. I was too busy having a good time. And then that kind of got out of my system. And then when I kind of really got back into it, my third year in college, which is part of the reason it took me six years to get out of uh, architecture school, my five-year degree, um, I didn't, I just didn't have any problems anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, 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 I think that happens to a lot of us who decide early on. I decided when I was 10, I just, you know, I wanted to be an artist. Mom said artists don't make any money. <laughs> she said architects make money. And so, okay, architects make money. I'll be an architect. So 10, 10 years old, I locked it in, put the blinders on, 
didn't let anything else, you know, sway me from becoming an architect. Uh, even sort of manipulated the career, you know, tests that you take in middle school to make sure that it, that it, that it results in architecture. See, that's and problem then, solving at yeah, an early age. Exactly. And I had you the same it. same problem when you go, you get into architecture school and it was the only thing that you've ever considered and you realize well, this is harder than you thought and it's not as, you know, it's not as easy and you're not as good as you thought you were going to be and you start questioning yeah. whether it's the right thing to do. And I, I went that, through that same crisis, thought I, yeah. you know, I'd quit and go you know, detail cars because I was doing that in the summer and making lots of money. And you know, and the truth is, it's kind of an all in education. I mean, when you start it, you don't kind of ease into it. I yeah. mean, it is cannonball into the deep end. Yeah. So, and yeah, first year, I'm, they... I'm not. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I'm not surprised that people, when they first go to school and they yeah. start this process, are kind of, you know, get a little like, shocked to the system about what's actually happening and they start questioning, oh my God, did I make the right decision? Yeah. And I think, I think the culture of architecture school. It's it's intended to do that. It's intended to weed out the weak, right? The ones that aren't really serious <laughs> about it. They want those yeah. people to drop. So, you know, the the cream rises to the crop and continues on. You know, our architecture school at Roger Williams originally now there's a big addition on it, but originally it was designed that the that the first year was really big and then it was designed in this stepping pattern that as you got down in studios, this the studio got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller showing you right from day one in the architecture that when you're a freshman, you know, a third of you are, are going to make it, yeah. you know, and that's, yeah. that's what happens. Yeah. I know. I, it's uh, I know you want to move on, but I, you know, I told my daughter, I go, this, this actually happens in a lot of professions, but you know, some of it has to do with like, I went to the university of Texas in Austin and their weed out process really is just getting into the program. So you look around and, you know, my graduating class, this is kind of salient point here is, you know, the University of Texas has 50 some odd thousands enrolled students. My graduating class had like 27 people in it, right? I mean, very, very small. Yeah. But the difference between where I started and where I ended up, you know, we only lost a half dozen people. You know, they're like, we vetted out the, the people just by making it so hard to get in as opposed to other right. schools that say, hey, give us, if you're interested, let's let you stick your toe in the water. And then they literally kill you to separate the wheat and the chaff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it, you know, and I, I don't know which schools follow which practice, but I, I definitely know that all the people I went in, they all showed up with their game faces and, and I got in like through a back door, I think, but, um, <laughs> they, yeah, they, well, they, you know, they saw is. your future. They knew what, yeah. what you were destined for. They couldn't let that one go by. Yeah. Well, so kudos what, for them. What did, when, when you, when you had that crisis, and you sort of weren't sure about what you wanted to do and you always wanted to be an architect. I'm assuming that your mom and dad also knew that you wanted to be an architect. How, how, did, they, well, you know, how did they feel yeah. when you said, well, maybe this isn't me? What did they do? I, they didn't do anything because I never told them that, <laughs> to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, my mom wanted me to be a musician, to be honest with you. Um, and I think that I wouldn't say she was disappointed that I didn't go that route because I know that she was proud of me for, for what I've accomplished. But um, there was a little bit of this, you know, this is who I see my child as. And if yeah. they didn't really see me struggling. What they saw me was goofing off, right? They, it wasn't a matter of you can't do this. It was, uh, yeah. and actually my, I have two older sisters and they're not older by much. We're, we're separated by three years and two weeks, top to bottom. Right. I mean, yeah. it was like eight, 18 months, you know, 18 months. Right. So my, the sister who's just one up from me, who's 18 months older than me. She, she pulled me aside once and she said, 
mom and dad are going to pull you out of school if you don't get your act together. Right. And I was like, what? Like, I mean, I wasn't making like F's. I was, yeah, I was still yeah. making good grades, but they could tell that I wasn't dialed in the way that I, I needed to be for, for me to find the success that would be required to, to enjoy this as a, as a path to have taken. Yeah. Um, and that was a pretty sobering kind of, you know, the reality of it is like, I mentioned the equivalence if you're five years old is if you do that, we're going to give you a spanking, right? And you're, you're motivated by spankings hurt, right? I don't want yeah. that. Do you think that Getting that was part of what helped you mature that year? That sort of your sister saying, Hey, if you don't shape up, you know, they're going to yeah. pull you out. Yeah, no question. Cause you know, the message being delivered via my sister was had a little bit different kind of sting to it than if it came from my parents, you know, cause she didn't really futz around with it. She just kind of said, blah, there it is. I mean, yeah. it was like a slap in the face. You know, there was no easing into it. There's like, Hey, we understand you're going through some things. You know, it was just like, get your crap together or you're done. Yeah. And that was my sister. Like, you know, it was crazy. Yeah. 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 She it's, denies, she denies having said it. She goes, everyone goes, oh, we don't remember that happening. And I'm like, uh, that was a watershed moment yeah. in my college career. So she yeah, saved, it saved absolutely. your career as an architect. That's right. I have yeah. her to blame. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and we all have it to blame too. We have to listen to That's you right. and, and read you. And <laughs> so I, I, I thank your sister for saving you because uh, yeah. you've contributed I'll, much to the profession. I'll pass it. I'll pass it along. I'm sure she'll be heartfelt yeah. to yes, receive it. So. I'm sure. I'm sure. Big sister. So, so the reason I wanted to ask about your, your, your mom and dad, because, because, you know, now you're in that position, right? Kate, mm -hmm. Kate yeah. your daughter, how old is Kate? She's 13 years old. She'll be 14 in a couple months. Yeah. So she's like my, she's my middle one. My middle one is 13. Yeah. And, uh, my oldest is, is actually in the process of looking for colleges has decided he doesn't want to go to college. And so there's that. Well, that's okay. That's I know, okay. I know there's that, there's that side too. And I'm okay with that too. But, but, uh, there are other pressures from other people of that, course. that, uh, that makes it important. Uh, actually UT is one of the schools that he's interested in. He wants to go oh. for, for business. And so we may actually take a ride down there. It's a good uh, business school. Yeah. And so, um, but, but you know, that, that now we're in that position as parents, right? That, that, yeah. and we're trying to run architecture firms and we're trying to be good, good dads. Um, and, and I think that's hard sometimes. I think it's hard to sort of integrate the firm and your family. You, you want your firm to be as successful as it can be both financially and, and, you know, from a, from a design point of view. And that takes a lot of effort and time to do that. And so it's sometimes the family sacrifices for you or know, you sacrifice your family to get to that certain point. And sometimes it's the other way around. Sure. So how do you, how do you deal with that? Because you know, your firm's very successful. You spend a lot of time on the other things that you do as well with, with the blog and, and, and the writing that you do. And so how do you sort of mesh those two? How do you keep your firm and your family both, you know, where they need to be? Well, you know, the, for what it's worth, and I'm not making light of this for other people's challenges or, or yep. difficulties, is I just don't find it very hard to do. Um, the the in our office, you know, we're we're not very big. I think we we currently have seven people here in the office, and we have, or at least we try to have a culture that you're a better architect if you have interests outside of the office, right? So we we don't really we're not motivated by you showing up at the crack of dawn, going home just before the crack of dawn. Uh, every single day. And the truth is, is we actually encourage people to get out. Um, we've even shaped our 
the hours in our office. You know, we close the office on Fridays at noon uh, just so that it gives people an opportunity to um, take care of stuff that they need to during the day or if they want to get a jump start on their weekend and take a trip somewhere, you know, a little, you know, it's hard to take a, a, a little weekend excursion when you have to start after work on a Friday night. You know, so if you shut down the, you have everybody work till our hours are eight to six, Monday through Thursday, and then eight to nine on Fridays. And I bet more times than not, somebody in the office is going somewhere every single weekend, you know, and they are able to get a jump start one o'clock on a Friday and move from there. And it's, it's something that we do. It's something we encourage, you know, my, one of the other partners, Michael, he has four kids. He has two that are out of college and he has one that just is in their freshman year of college and one that's I think a junior in, in high school and he's very motivated his family's a big motivator for him and you know one of the benefits of working for a firm like ours or at the very least having your name on the door is uh if you need to be gone on wednesday afternoon at two o'clock in the afternoon to go watch a soccer game then go do it you know we have the mentality you're still a grown up you still have to do your work you still have a task that you have to complete nobody does your job when you're not here but it doesn't necessarily mean as, as long as you've handled what needs to be handled from a client request or, you know, you have a meeting, you know, you either don't schedule a meeting when you want to be at the soccer game or you'd miss the soccer game if you can't avoid it. Um, but we don't let that stuff get in the way. You know, yes. everyone can solve that problem if they want to. So, so it's, in, it's culture. Your firm, yeah, your firm has, it's, in, it's whether it's intentional or it's sort of evolutionary from, you know, just from the way that your priorities and Michael's priorities that, that the culture has been established, that that's the way it, is set up how how intentional yeah. was that at the beginning and how intentional is it now i think it's always kind of been in place um you know of course michael's had his name on the door for oh, like 25 years and and while i was actually his first employee back in 1992 you know i've left the firm and come back this is actually my third time in the office when he asked me to come back and join as a partner and kind of reshape how the firm was going to operate um but he's always kind of operated in that capacity because it's always been some for him. Now that I'm not an, an employee as it were, uh, that same latitude is extended to me and it's really hard to, you know, lead from the ivory tower and make a different set of rules for yourself than you would allow to everyone else in the office. So yep. we don't, at least I don't do that. Um, we just ask people to like give us a heads up if you need to go do something, be somewhere else. And if there's a problem, we'll deal with it. Um, but no one ever says no. You yeah, know, if you say, hey, right. can I leave early to go do this? Or there's a lecture I want to hear and I need to leave it for. Fine, great, go do it. Yeah, yeah. We still have the expectation. Now, one of the things that's different is, you know, my responsibilities with the office require me to sit in front of a computer a lot, talk on the phone a lot. But it's not something that I can't do at 8 o'clock at night or 9 o'clock at night or whatever. So half the time I come home, I participate in my family. And then as my daughter's doing her homework, I'm yeah. doing my, my work, my work. Um, but I'm not isolated off somewhere else in another part of the city, you know, doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, I talk about the integrated life rather than work-life balance, you know, that that's a perfect example of that. Sometimes, you know, your, your family and your firm overlap, but it's intentional that, that you're not, you're not sacrificing one for the other. You're actually making them work together. That there's, that there's sometimes where you're working and sometimes you're focused on your family, but sometimes they happen throughout the day at different times. Like, you, you yeah. may go to soccer in the middle of the day, but then you're back at work to do what you need to do at work. And they sort of just all mesh and, and you know, meld together. Yeah. Well, you know, there's, there's, there's the, 
there's the idea and this this rationalization or, or at least this realization maybe a better way to put it comes across every entrepreneur or architect every small firm architect every guy person woman whomever working for themselves in a small office the light bulb goes off that the more i work the more money i make right it's fairly binary and you have to make a decision at some point that says the balance is not between home life and work life it's it's to me it's kind of money driven and uh if i wanted to work 60 hours a week i'd make more money but the truth is is i don't want to work that much and it's the extra money i i'm i i do all right i do well enough to be able to live the life that brings me happiness and i'm not willing to sacrifice what i have for some you know to make it a disproportionate you know i don't i don't need three houses i yeah. don't i don't I don't, I don't drive a fancy car because I don't really care. Um, those things are not what motivate me. So it's, it's easy for me to sit up on my perch here and say, oh, it's a piece of cake. You know, I don't work because I don't want to work. And there are people out there that are working hard because they need to work hard because they have different, you know, my wife works. We have one child. Um, you know, we're dual income family. I'm not the sole provider in my family. So the burden to cover our expenses and do what needs to be done does not just rest on my shoulders. And that provides me a certain amount of flexibility in this attitude that I am so cavalierly throwing out to the people who are listening to this episode. Um, now, my, my my wife does well. I do well. Um, I we can't complain. And uh, and it's 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 a it's a place you put yourself in mentally. And and I know that if I wanted to live in a nicer house or if I wanted to have a bigger lot or if I wanted to have a weekend place or if I wanted a boat, these are the things that motivate me. I know what I would need to do to make it happen. Truth is, I'm not motivated by those things. So I can, I can do what I want to do. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors here at Entree Architect, RCAT, and FreshBooks. For years, when I needed information on manufacturers' products, I headed straight to the internet, straight to google.com. And then I sifted through the hundreds of results, maybe thousands of results, to find the one or two that might be the link that I'm looking for. And more often than not, it wasn't. It wasn't what I was looking for, or it was outdated, or it didn't meet my requirements. So what do I do? I go back to the search engine and I start all over again. And this could take all afternoon to find the one or two or three products that I'm looking for. Does this sound familiar? Do you do this? There is a better way. Our friends at RCAT. RCAT.com, A-R-C-A-T. Find what you're looking for in seconds. Building product information, BIM, CAD, custom specifications using their exclusive tool, SpecWizard, and keep it all online right there in one place using their cloud-based project organization tool, Charette. Here's an idea, make RCAT a part of your efficient project workflow. Use it on every project. Just type in entrearchitect.com slash RCAT. That's entrearchitect.com slash RCAT. Type that into your internet browser and add it to your favorites. And then on every project, use RCAT. Just click that link, you'll go straight to RCAT and you'll find everything that you're looking for in seconds. Find what you need fast and make more money on every project. EntreeArchitect.com slash RCAT. FreshBooks makes it simple to send invoices, post your expenses automatically, track your time for your whole team, buy project, and get organized with reports, communication, 
and notifications. And getting started with FreshBooks, this is so ridiculously easy. Most people send their first invoice seconds after starting their free trial. It's a click of a button. The same goes for tracking time, managing expenses, collaborating with contractors, and viewing financial reports. It's simple, fast, easy, life-changing. And if you need help at any time, free award-winning customer service is a phone call or an email away. I've used it, it works. And if you ever have second thoughts, don't worry. On top of their free trial for Entree Architect listeners, you get a free 30-day money-back guarantee so you don't ever have to worry about choosing fresh books. So give it a try. It's free for 30 days. Just visit entrearchitect.com slash fresh books and then let them know that we sent you by sharing Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's entrearchitect.com slash freshbooks to access your free unlimited 30-day trial. So RCAT and FreshBooks, please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. It comes down to choices, right? It's, it's yeah. you've chosen um, to sacrifice some of those things that you might have, you know, a lake house or a boat or fancy car um, to, to be able to have a life that you can spend more time with your daughter and your wife when you want to and, and, and go away on vacation for a week because that's, that's a priority and that's what you want to do. Um, yeah. You know, it's all, it's all about choices. If you want to make a million dollars a year, you can do that. But there's going to be know, a lot of sacrifices and choices uh, you need to make to make that happen. That's right. And, and the truth is, is it, this isn't even just a conversation about family life and work life. This is a this is a conversation that could structure what type of architect you are um, and the type of market sector you might want to work in. The truth is, is and I and you know this actually goes back to one of the very first blog posts that I wrote um, that kind of put my site on the map. And you know, I wrote uh, two posts on consecutive days. One was top 10 reasons to be an architect and one was top 10 reasons not to be an architect. And I did this in response to an article that I'd read from um, an architect who in the digital world, we all know who this guy is. I've never said who it was, but if I told you, you would know who it is. I like this guy, a lot of respect for him. I think he's a clever, incredibly bright, clever person. But he talked about Architects don't get enough, don't get paid enough. The work we do is hard and it's challenging and we're not, you know, respected. Yes. And I hear that argument so much, it just makes me want to shove a pencil in my eye. And okay. and part of it is really driven by my gut reactions. Well, well maybe you're just not that good. No, you know? And I'm not, I'm yeah, not really yeah. a demeaning thing to kind of throw out because I mean, I don't know what kind of architect he is. I don't know about his skill level, but, um, and then I know, but I, I don't buy that argument. And, and I know that if, if you as an architect want to make a lot of money, there are decisions you can make where your career is concerned that will put you on a, if you want to do tilt wall warehouse buildings that are 200,000 square feet, you'll probably be able to do a lot more and make more money than if you choose to do the labor intensive communication, you know, crazy levels of doing high-end residential work you know the amount of work that we put in per dollar is way different than than if someone says i need a warehouse and their input is it needs to be this big right and you just kind of roll them out or you do side adapts for circuit cities or something which someone needs to do that there's there's quality and there's there's ability to do that and it's a need you know and the fee scale is going to be different than the kind of work that i take on and so you, you as a person, not necessarily you, Mark, but yep. as an architect, there's lots of decisions that you have to make in your career. They're going to shape how you live your life. 
Some of it's financial related. Some of it's okay. how you spend your time. But they're all they're all interlinked with one another. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and and I and that's why I always push that's, planning so much that that uh, for young architects, if you want to be at a certain place at a certain time in your life, you need to be intentional about that. You need to make the choices to get to those places and and make the decisions that were, were will move you in that direction. Um, yeah, perfect. Because you otherwise, you'll end up you know where you yeah. don't want to be. You know, and, and yeah. You know, if you want to do high-end residential architecture, there are there's a path for that. And if you want to make a lot of money, there's a path for that. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And sometimes they all come together. Yeah. I mean, yep. certainly there are people that do well and people that don't well don't do well in all these different market sectors. Um, I think that the trick when I talk to younger people <laughs> a lot of times is the the skill is figuring out what your skill set is because there's a difference, especially true in younger people of knowing what they want to do versus what they're good at. And sometimes those don't align. Like I want to be a great designer, but I'm not, and they're not willing to concede that yet. And so this vision they have for themselves, the path that they want to take, isn't going to fall into place. And I went through something in my own career. Um, I'm actually pretty good at talking with folks and I'm a, I think I'm a pretty good designer. And I kept for a long, like I didn't even take the license exam until I was 30 years old. And part of the reason I did it because I felt I didn't know enough to be able to pass that exam. I mean, I, I didn't know how to be an architect yet because every job I took, I said, oh, I need to learn how to do construction drawings. And they would start. And then before too long, they'd say, we got someone else who can do that. We, we're going we're gonna to put you in the room with the client. And so my skill set was my ability to communicate. And, you know, I'm pretty good at not putting my foot in my mouth too deeply. And, um, and I would end up changing jobs because I'd say, this is not what I want to do. I need to learn how to do this stuff or I'm never going to be an architect. And it wasn't until I probably reached my mid thirties that the light bulb went off and said, okay, this is what I'm good at and I need to embrace it. Yeah. Follow so, your, follow your strengths. The, the, yeah. the, the sooner you discover your strength and that's why uh, tests like strength builders and things like that are so valuable because you can, you can discover the things that, that make you tick, the things that you love to do and why you love to do them. Usually the things you love to do are because you're good at them. And the exactly, things that you right. struggle with and tend to be the things that you don't like. I, I, you know, as an architect, I always wanted to design and be the designer, but I very early learned that the business is what got me excited about it. I married an architect who was very good at the design end of things. And so I let her do all the design and I do all the business and we, you know, we, we love our life and, and, the, and I just, I don't design at all anymore ever, <laughs> you know? And so, and yeah. I'm happy for that because that's not where my passion is. It's not what I love to sure. do. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's, those are all, all about being intentional and, and, and making choices and planning and, and, and you had talked about how, um, the culture is so important to the way you live your life and the way your firm lives your life. That also allows you to sort of do things like you just came back from mm -hmm. Ireland. Um, talk about that a little bit and how, how those trips that you, that you take, cause I know I follow you on Instagram and follow you on Twitter and. And I see that you, you know, occasionally will go away and, and you'll go to these fun places that are, that are unique and, and, um, uh, adventurous. And so talk about how that works into your family and the firm and, uh, and how you make those things happen. Well, uh, you know, I, I get a, a decent amount of time off, you know, and I, between the my my daughter her age and where she gets breaks and so like the trip to ireland was during her spring break yeah and my wife gets a similar amount of time off and so 
we tend to try to take advantage of the time off that we were provided by the stations we've achieved in our in our respective careers. Um, now we, I didn't do a lot of traveling as a child. You know, my my parents were somewhat grounded a little bit, and if it didn't involve getting in a car and driving to Minnesota for three days, we generally didn't do it. Yeah, and um, it was something that I always kind of felt like I had lacked, right? It was something that I missed out on. And I, when I was in college, I did a study abroad program and it was not based in a single city. So for, for the fall semester, a little tail end of summer, the fall semester and kind of the holiday Christmas break beginning of January, I was in, I was in Europe and I got back from that trip and I realized I'd been in more foreign countries that I'd been in States. Um, yeah. And it, it wasn't something that I, I go, you know, and, and I learned a lot about myself when I was on the trip. I, you know, I was at an age to where I saw lots of buildings, but there was no context to it. It was just like, look at that detail. Look at that building. Look at the big stones on the bottom and the smaller stones on the top. You know, the, the context was a little bit different. And um, and I realized that as I started to get older, and I was very fortunate, the job that my wife had when we, when we first got married, um, she had the very, you know, generic title of consultant. And part of her job entailed her traveling to a client site every single week. And so she would fly out on a Monday and fly back on a Thursday. And so she was just racking up car rental points and hotel points and status and frequent fire miles like crazy. And we had no money. I mean, we had no money when I was younger. But we had all this all this miles and, and hotel vouchers and all this kind of stuff. So it allowed us to take all sorts of trips when we were in our twenties that we never would have been able to afford otherwise. Um, you know, like we would go to London for a three day weekend just because we could, it was easy. Uh, now the funny thing that was about it is we'd get to these places and we'd stay in these amazing hotels and, and you know, we couldn't eat there and we couldn't drink, have a drink. Yeah. We didn't have any money. Right. So, and we walk into the lobby in our tennis shoes and our jeans and we're looking at these people that, you know, are, have their, their drivers out front waiting to pick them up, you know, and they're wearing suits and we look like we should have gone into the delivery entrance around the side. And, uh, but it was fun and we had a great time with it and we, we went to all different sorts of countries and, and it was something that when we had our daughter, we thought it's important for us to expose to her that how we live is not how it is everywhere, that there are different people, different cultures and they don't, everyone doesn't look like us and people don't eat the same food that we eat and, because it was something I didn't have growing up as a child. Yeah. And um, so like this trip to Ireland is actually the second time I've been there. Uh, my wife lived there for a while. My wife was actually born in England. Um, she's not English. You know, she doesn't have an accent. There's nothing you know yeah. cool like that. But uh, uh, she lived in Ireland for a period of time when she was in like middle school, like when she was like 12, 13 years old. So 14 years ago, we decided – uh, let's go to Ireland. Let's just kind of see where you spent part of your life. And it was a beautiful country and, uh, had a lot of fun. It's really kind of casual and peaceful. There's, there's not a lot of cutting edge architecture that's necessarily happening over there. Um, but there's a lot of history and the yeah. country is just ridiculously pretty. Yeah. Um, and the people are off the charts, nice and friendly. We just, we had a blast. And so my daughter started getting to the age, um, where who she is and where she came from and what her background is and what her heritage and grandpa was, what's he and you know and she learns that you know she's half Norwegian and a quarter American Indian and you know part Irish and part English and all this kind of stuff. 
So she ended up doing a school project and it, it led her to think that she wanted to go see Ireland. So we asked her, where do you want to go for spring break this year? And she goes, I want to go to Ireland. So, I mean, that's how we chose that as yeah. a destination. And, um, and the thing about it, you and I kind of chatted offline a little bit about this, that the way these vacations get put together is my wife does it. She do, literally does every bit of the work. I do none of it. Yeah. And I, you know, if I was being brutally honest, it's, it's because I'm lazy. Um, but the it's, truth it's is not you know, your strength, Bob. That's, that's <laughs> you know, well, I, you know, the, the your, truth your is, strength is, is, is to show up <laughs> my, you know, yeah, I'm excellent at showing up. And, uh, and so, so what my wife is, is our brains work differently. You know, um, she got her advanced degrees in math and she's a very linear thinker. So the idea that there's like schedules and agendas and we show up here and we're going to drive to this point, we're going to go here for this long and then we're going to go, that makes just that sentence almost made my head explode yeah. uh, on this recording. So I, I'm more of a drop me in some place and then I'm going to spin around and go, what's that? And walk over to it. That's, that's kind of how, and that doesn't, it's not really good strategy for vacation planning. And so I let my wife take care of it and she'll come and she'll say, what do you think about this? And I'll chime in with my opinion. And, and so I might kind of, I'm, I'm, I have a small rudder in the process that kind of guides us from A to B at times. But for the most part, my wife says, Hey, we're going to fly in at this time in this location. And then here are the places we're going to ping pong along the way. What's your pecking order of activities that you might want to see out of these things. And I show up and I have a great time. And, and the truth is, is, um, you know, my daughter, until just very recently, has always said that she wanted to be an architect. And and she's still kind of thinking maybe that might be some interest in doing, but for some reason becoming a dermatologist has shown up on the scene here recently. And um, and so going on these tours and, and going and looking at buildings was not something I had to like drag them both kicking and screaming. Yeah. But but they have a threshold, right? Nobody wants to go on architectural trips in my family maybe other than me and even me i don't care so much because i'm on holiday and i like looking at stuff but i'm more interested in like turning parts of my brain off yeah, so that right. i can i can enjoy my time with my family so uh on all these trips especially and particularly the one we just got back from i may have done three percent of the work involved my job was driving the car on the left hand side of the road and not crashing into any walls that was my job and taking selfies well, I have longer arms than anybody else. So yeah. I saw the, the daily selfie. Everybody should go to Bob Borson on Instagram and go check out all the pictures from Ireland. Beautiful. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, I'm not a selfie person. I'm, I'm not very footage. Yeah, it's the only uh, time I've ever seen you. I know. Selfies. I just, you know, I just assume people not know what I look like. But um, the thing that I think is kind of funny is uh, it's really windy. You know, it's, it's, it's not super cold there right now, but it's. I, interestingly enough, the the weather is almost identical to what it is here in Dallas, Texas. I mean, like the lows were in the you know the upper 30s and the highs were in the low 50s, and it's it's not bad, right? Yeah. Um, but you go to some of these places, and there's like an 80 mile an hour wind blowing everywhere, and you know I'll tell you, while 45 might not be that cold, yeah. put an 80 mile an hour wind on it, and it starts feeling a little chilly. Yeah. And so the whole selfie thing started because we were trying to take, like, we want a picture of our family just for our own purposes to have. And I'm trying to take a picture and my wife and daughter's hair is blowing around like crazy. We look ridiculous. <laughs> and I was like, all right, we need to do one of these every day. And so that's kind of how that process started. It's, it's yeah. the first time in 25 years of marriage that my wife and I are like, let's take a selfie. 
Yeah, I and loved it. Sports. I loved sort of. I lo- and I loved that they were selfies. That they weren't just pictures of the of the scenery. That you could see yeah. the fun that you were having in each one of those pictures. You were all smiling and laughing, and the fair was going on everywhere. And, and yeah, you have you it. have your new beard, and you had your black glasses on. It looked like you were in Ireland incognito. So nobody would would see. I know. It, it was. I know. I like so I like the beard, by the way. I know that people can't see it on the podcast, but they should go to the to the Instagram and go check it out. I like. I know, it. right? Yeah. Is, is it permanent? It's gonna is it gonna stay? You know what? I'm surprised. My my wife is is not a fan of facial hair, but I think as I have, you know, I'll be turning fifty here in a couple of weeks, and um, and I think what happens is it, it it makes me look thinner. I think that's her. She looks at it and she goes, "Hey, you look you look good." And I go, yeah, because you can't see how soft my throat is becoming. Uh, now she looks, she goes, that's not true. But, you know, you can almost see her winking, you know, as <laughs> yeah, right, she says right. it. But I don't know. we'll see what happens. You know, when it, when it gets to be 100 degrees here, you know, I might reevaluate it. But yeah. we'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, I like the not shaving part. I'll tell you that. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that. it is convenient. I, I tried it for a little while and I just couldn't handle it. And my wife also wasn't a big fan. So it, it had yeah. to go. But I know that a lot of the architect community, they're all, you know, there's a whole contingent of, of beardhers out there that just like like their beard their beards and so Yeah. I'm, I, I wouldn't join the club. My, well, no, I'll tell you. I wouldn't <laughs> put myself in that category. And every now and then people take pictures and they'll say like beard, it'll be a close up and I was like, Nobody wants to see your beard that close. Nobody, <laughs> including me. And, uh, and, uh, you know, the problem I run into is, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm half Norwegian, which means I'm a hundred percent Viking. Yep. And so I can grow this beard in like 45 minutes. <laughs> it's, like, uh, it's just there. The problem is it's white, so you can't see it. I mean, it, oh, I should say it's a like clear, like that, like my hair is it's, Trans- it's like transparent a beard. Yeah. And so it's like, I'd come into the office and people say, oh, you got a little something going there. And, and I go, what do you mean? It's like an inch long now. He, he, you know, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Well, it, it looks good. So people people should definitely go go check it out. Uh, I think we need to uh, to wrap up. We're coming up on our on the time here. I love talking to you. I can talk to you for hours. I just just hanging out and, and chatting. Uh, we'll do, do more of that in New York City. When, are you going to be there at the conference? I am going to be there. I am yeah. going to be there. So we'll yeah. hang out with you then. Um, let me ask you that our, our one question that we ask everybody before we wrap up here, what's one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? You know, when you, you kind of alluded that this question was coming in the beginning, it's, it's kind of been noodling around the back of my head and I've been dying to, can I come up with a clever, insightful, like an answer that probably nobody has said before. And truth is, is I don't have one. The way we do it is, um, I think this practice of ours mine, everyone's, it's kind of personality based, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, if, if somebody says I want to hire an architect to, to do my house, if their only requirement is to have five bedrooms and four bathrooms and a dining room and it doesn't leak line forms to the left, right? Why would I think get that from anybody? Why do they want it from me? Yeah. I, th- I think, I think being like letting you be you, letting your personality be a big part of the process and, um, is really important for people to do. And, and, and this kind of idea cemented itself actually when I started writing the blog and it became readily apparent that, you know, you can't be all things to all people at all times and experience any kind of satisfaction or pleasure from the process. So I think, I think learning how to be true to yourself while not being disrespectful or condescending is the one thing that's made the biggest difference when it's come to 
how we develop client relationships and how we run projects in our office. Because we tell people, you're going to have a lot of fun doing this. You know, a lot of people kind of dread the process a little bit. And uh, with so many pro- pro- you know, products out there that are readily available, uh, I mean, there's no shortage of houses that somebody can go buy today and move into. So right. why do they want to sign up for, you know, an, an 18 or 24-month process? Uh, and I go, because you're going to have a lot of fun. It's going to change your life. And we're gonna, this is going to be an awesome experience. And that's one of the things that we really promote. And, um, so I think really kind of figuring out who you are and letting yourself be known to the people you're working with is really, a lot of people are scared to do that. I think, yeah. um, yeah, cause they yeah. might go, I'm a jerk, right? But <laughs> you need to own it. You know, you need to, you need to be that person cause somebody's not going to think you're a jerk. They're going to think you're amazing. Yeah. Authenticity. You'll be, yeah. you be you. My, my, uh, when I was about. I don't know, I was probably about 16 and I have an older brother who's four years older than me and we didn't work out so well as kids. Great, great, great brothers now, but as kids we had uh, lots of conflicts and I always looked up to him and always tried to be him, you know? And yeah. and one day he came to me and said, you be you, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And he when he said that, my whole life changed. You know, I stopped trying to be him. I stopped trying to be other things and, and it dawned on me later in my life, looking back at that, what that means it really means what you just said you be you and go all in on you and there's a there's yeah. a community out there who wants to embrace that and there may be yeah. others who don't but there's a community for you who wants to embrace that and so that's i think that's great advice thanks for that yeah you know well i'll tell you and i know you're wrapping it up but one of the things that really kind of cemented it for me was um uh was when i started writing the blog and you know and of course everybody's main fear when they're going to put themselves out there yeah, in that capacity right. is looking like an idiot to their their peers or their friends or you know whatnot, and and what I realized is that as much as I felt that I was unique and special and you know my path from A to where I'm at right now is like totally my own, it's it really doesn't deviate much with the thousands of people that have emailed me to say, here's my life story, so that I like you need to know my entire background before you can I can ask you this question they're all, they're all incredibly similar. They're all very, very, very similar. And what I realized is, um, there's more value in letting people know that you like to speak Klingon and you knit on the weekends and you're a fan of cat juggling videos because you're going to realize that there's a, as shocking as this is, there's a lot of people out there that like those exact same things, but you don't ever realize it because in your little bubble, you know, before social media and digital yep, technology right. kind of allowed us to connect with anybody all over the place, you really feel kind of isolated. And, and I don't want to say special because that makes it sound like we're all princes unique. and princesses. But yeah, yeah, we all think we're unique. But the truth is, is whatever you like, other people like it too. It's just a matter of finding those people and finding people that can support you and what you're doing because that's also what they're into. So part of it's just you being you, but part of it's also putting yourself out there to help find the people that will support you in being you. Yeah. I think that's great advice. You said you didn't have one, but that, <laughs> that is, that is absolutely a great one. So thanks for Good. for sharing that. Um, the website at the architecture firm is mmbarchitects.com. Uh, the blog, and most people probably know the blog, it's lifeofanarchitect.com. It's an easy one to find. You could search Bob Borson and you'll find his whole life online. Um, Facebook is uh, life of an architect. And then Twitter and Instagram is at Bob Borson. So I highly recommend everybody go check him out there. Go subscribe to his uh, to his blog. And, and it's a great read every week. Actually, it's once a week still. Uh, yeah, it's normally at least once a week. Yeah. 
Uh, thanks I'm slow, for... I've slowed down over the years. Yeah, I know. Nice. You did you but, did uh, every day, and then you did every every couple of days. Actually, yeah. if everybody wants, this, we we talked about the blog on episode two. So go check out entrearchitect.com slash episode two. I think I don't think it's zero zero two. I think it's two. But you can search on the on the blog and find them. Um, I think that's a great episode too. The, the, you'll hear the audio quality and <laughs> how how we've increased and gotten better over the years. So uh, thanks amazing. for being there in episode two. Thanks for being here on on this later episode. I appreciate you for being here, and I appreciate what you do for the profession, both inside the profession as well as you know outside the profession. So thanks for thanks, thanks for doing that. No, I appreciate. It. Thanks for having me back after two hundred and five thousand episodes. <laughs> Thanks, thanks for being here on Entree Architect Podcast. Well, there you go, my friend Bob Borson, sharing all kinds of things that maybe you didn't hear anywhere else. That was my goal here with this episode is to, to not dive deep into blogging like he, you know, that's what everybody asks Bob because Life of an Architect, the blog, has got a million subscribers and, you know, it breaks through the charts every day and Everybody wants to talk to him about that. We talked about that in episode two. I just wanted to talk about Bob and, and learn more about who Bob was, uh, what makes him tick, talk about his family a little bit, his firm. Um, so I hope you enjoyed it. This is a great episode to share. You know, if you want to, uh, if, if you know somebody who reads Bob's blog and says, hey, want to know a little bit more about Bob Borson, go check out entrearchitect.com slash episode 217. That's this episode entrearchitect.com slash episode 217. Go share this with a friend. Put it on Facebook. Put it on Twitter. Send an email to a friend. Tap a friend on the shoulder around the corner in the next cubicle. Say, hey, Bob Borson's on Entree Architect. Go check it out. entrearchitect.com slash episode 217. I would appreciate it. Um, also, if you're not a member of our Entree Architect Facebook group, it's called The Entree Architect Community. It is the most active, most supportive, most encouraging most positive uh, group on the internet for small firm architects. Come join us. You will be welcome there. If you're an architect or an architectural student, come join us. EntreeArchitect.com slash group. It's a private Facebook group. Uh, it's free, but it's private. You have to be an architect or an architectural student to, to join. Just request membership. We'll let you in. We just passed <clears throat> 2,600 members inside there. So come, come hang out with us. If you have a question about anything, you'll get 50, 60, 70, 100 respondents of, from passionate architects just like you who want to help you. That's what that group's for. So entrearchitect.com slash group. Go check that out. Uh, go check out my friends at Archispeak Podcast and Inside the Firm Podcast, two fantastic podcasts. If you like what I'm doing here at Entree Architect, you're going to love what you, what you hear over there. Go check them out and then tweet them and say, hey, Entree Architect is talking about you over there. So uh, two fantastic podcasts, two that I don't miss every week. So go check them out. And, and what else do I have for you? I think that's it. I appreciate you for being here. I really do. Uh, I encourage you to go share what you know with a friend and another architect. Be transparent. Be honest. Encourage others to share what they know. I really appreciate you for being here. My name is Mark Arlapage. I am an entrepreneur architect. I am rambling. But I also encourage you to build a better business because that's what we're going to do. That's, that's how we're going to do this. That's how we're going to
to change the way the profession runs around here. You make more money, the whole profession benefits from that. So entrearchitect.com, go check that out. Go build a better business so you can be a better architect. Love, learn, share what you know. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected 
annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.